Hey friends, and welcome to the Happy Hour with Jamie Ivy podcast. I'm your host, Jamie, and I'm so glad you're here. Each week on this show, I invite a girlfriend to join me and we chat about the big things in life, the little things in life, and everything in between. Happy Friday, you guys. I hope that this week has been a great week for you. I am heading to Dallas today to be a part of the live stream as the host for If Lead. I love all things If Gathering, and so it is going to be such a joy to be able to be with them this weekend. And it's actually my first time to travel since quarantine, so I am super excited about that. If you're joining us this weekend for If Lead, share a picture. Tag me on social media because I want to see who you're watching it with. Being part of the F family is such a joy, and I'm so glad that we're going to do this virtually together. Speaking of fun, did you guys see all the incredible pre-order goodies that we have when you pre-order my newest book, You Be You? I am so giddy excited for you guys to get this book in your hands, and I want to tell you that when you pre-order it, number one, it is super helpful for authors when you pre-order their book. It helps the stores go, hey, you should stock this book because people are going to buy it. But also, we're going to give you things when you pre-order the book, like you're going to get a ticket to our virtual Happy Hour Live book launch party on September 30th that's going to be so much fun. You're going to get a printable that's designed by my friend Daphne with Strong Word Studios. You're also going to be entered to win lunch with me. Yes, it's true. Me and my BFF are going to fly to you and your BFF, and we're going to go have lunch together. We have merch discounts for our happy hour store. We have Waterloo-style discounts. So much fun stuff for you. Plus, when you pre-order, you get to read the very first chapter of the book early. I really am, you guys, so excited about this book and the message, and I want every person to know about God's design for you, that he has given you unique gifts and talents and passions and placed you in a place where your voice is going to make the most impact. Also, if you missed something I shared or you're on a walk, this will be easy for you. Just text UBU, which is the title of the book, to 33777. That's UBU, no spaces, to 33777. And we will make sure that you stay in the loop about this newest book. Friends, I have been so excited for you to hear this conversation today with Eugene Cho. The second I finished recording, I said to myself, I cannot wait for this show to air. We talked today about his new role with the organization Bread for the World. He just took over this new role. Bread for the World is a collective of Christian voices urging our nation's decision makers to end hunger at home and abroad. Eugene shares wisdom in navigating our current political world during a time that has felt extremely divisive, to say the very least. I appreciate Eugene's passions for leadership, justice, the gospel, and the pursuit of God's kingdom here on earth. I literally 100% wanted to talk with him for hours and hours. And so when you're done and you were wishing that we would have talked for longer, just know the feeling is mutual. Okay, guys, here is my conversation with my new friend, Eugene. Hey, Eugene, welcome to the happy hour. Thank you so much, Jamie. What a joy and a pleasure and a treat to spend some time with you. Well, I'm so happy to have you on. We have a mutual friend, Brie, over at Welcome Women, and she has spoken so highly of you. I told her that I was interviewing her, you today, and this is what she said. You will love him. He's the ultimate pastor. Oh, man. Well, that's a, a special affirmation and an encouragement, and it's really, again, so good to be able to spend some time with you. 
Well, this is exciting. If you will, just introduce yourself to my people that are listening. Tell us what you're doing in life right now with your job. And we're going to talk a lot about that. But introduce yourself and your family to us. Sure. So again, I'm calling in from Seattle, Washington right now. And this has been home for my family and I for the past uh, 24 or so years. My wife and I, uh, her name is Min Hee. We've been married 24 years. She's a marriage and family therapist. Pause for dramatic effect. <laughs> it means I've not won a single argument in 24 years. And I'm not even joking right now. And uh, we have three children, two that are in college, and our youngest is a rising senior in high school. And my wife and I planted a church in Seattle called Quest Church about 20 years ago, about a year and a half ago, made one of the most difficult gut-wrenching decisions to step down at a time of flourishing, which is an answer to prayer. But it was just really hard to let go of this church because we felt like God had something next for us. We weren't quite sure what that was. And it's something that we're not super excited about, if I'm bluntly honest. Like, we want to be faithful. It is exciting, but it's also another time of mourning because in the next year, we're going to be moving from Seattle, the only place that we've known as home, to Washington, D.C. Just this month, I began my new role as president and CEO of a Christian advocacy organization called Bread for the World, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a bit. And simultaneously, we still run a grassroots humanitarian organization called One Day's Wages. I also get a chance to speak here and there and write. I just published a book called Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk, A Christian's Guide to Engaging Politics. And what an interesting time. So I'll stop right there. What an interesting time. And I know that you have only been in your new position for a month and you've had a great welcome into your new position. You got, you've got you had to walk through some hard things already, um, mm-hmm. but congrats on everything. My husband and I were visiting Washington, D.C. last year and love the city. And mm. I think it's going to be a fun change for you. Okay, so let's talk about this organization that you just became president of, Bread for the World. Yeah. Uh, can you just walk us through what you guys do and about hunger in America? Because if I'm honest... I think most people think about let's alleviate hunger in Indonesia and let's Mm. alleviate hunger in Haiti and Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. But let's talk about what your mission is and what you see and how that even ties in with politics as well. Sure. That's a great question. And I think it's so important for you to highlight that nuance because for many of us, we have to somewhat dismantle a lot of the perceptions that we have about so many issues, that it's not just the 30,000 foot level, but we got to dig in just a little bit. So the organization that I'm uh, leading right now is called Bread for the World. And I want to just say that really slowly because I can't tell you how many times, even in like interviews, people call it bread of life, even in the middle of interviews. (laughs) So I just want to say if anyone who's listening to this referred to us as bread of life, you have to become an automatic donor. Uh, that's, that's, that's a your good penalty. thing right there. I love that's it. I love it. So Bread for the World, it's an organization. It's a Christian organization started 45 years ago. We all care about hunger as Christians. We know that we care about it because we believe the scriptures speak of it and attest to it. 45 years ago, what transpired is that we realize that there's many different ways that you can tackle hunger. We can do it on our own lives. We can do it with churches. We can do it neighbor to neighbor. We can do it with uh, food banks. And all of these things matter. And I don't want to diminish it at all. 
in addition to these things, we believe that a government has a moral obligation to participate, to lead the way as well. So it's that whole debate, like, is it the church's responsibility? Is it the person's responsibility? Is it the government's? And the answer is all of the above. It's all of the above. And so as an organization, while we affirm all the different ways that people are tackling hunger, we're also trying to encourage and partner with Christians and the capital C church to urge our lawmakers to enact more just and compassionate laws and policies that would help elevate people. And so right now in our country, there are about 55-ish million people that are experiencing hunger on some level or another. Hmm. And we're not just talking about like calorie intake. Like there's such a nuance. It's not just the calories that you intake, but in order for us to experience flourishing in our lives, you can't just intake calories. We have to talk about healthy nutrition, things of that nature. And because of the current COVID pandemic, those numbers have exasperated in ways that we haven't seen in a long, long time. You add to that the complexities of unemployment, the economic crisis. You know, all of us, we were struck by these long caravans of cars waiting for food. That hasn't gone away. I mean, we're still hearing stories in major cities around the country where there are lots of lines of people waiting for food. So this is an issue here in our country. Just to give one or two statistics, in a recent national survey, 40% of mothers with children under 12, 40% of mothers with children under 12 said that they were unable to adequately feed their families during this current time. And obviously, there's a global issue as well that, you know, you mentioned that's also there and it's actually really, really intense. And I want to just highlight the international front because, you know, you mentioned Haiti. When the Haiti earthquake took place, it was pretty stunning how like people responded. And I think we were able to because collectively we were able to like respond because it was an issue over there. Mm. During our current pandemic, we're not able to focus so much on the international front because it's impacting so many of us. But the World Food Program, they're estimating that by the end of this year, those who are experiencing like acute hunger, like severe hunger, it's going to double from 135 to 265 million people by the end of this year. So in response to this, we're urging our lawmakers, your Congress people, your senators to say, as we deal with all the complexities of government, like we think food and nutrition and hunger is a human rights issue, particularly with a nation like ours that's so affluent. We got to respond to it. We know it's complex. We know that there are many multi-layered conversations, but we're urging them to respond in certain ways to help people during this time. You know, it's interesting because you said what was going to be one of my questions that a lot of people would say, well, this is the church's job. And then other people would say, well, this is the government's job. And we would see we could sometimes put those into their political parties as to who would say which and what. Sure. What is the pushback that you have the most from maybe not even lawmakers, but just from citizens? And we'll stick to Christians. We'll, we'll stick here with what are some of the pushbacks that you have from Christians with really, truly believing that we can, A, make a difference and that we should spend time talking about this? Because I think our souls, no one's going to say, I don't care about people that are hungry. Like no one's going to say that, yep, right? Yep. But then there is this, you know, push comes to shove. You might not actually care about it. So what's some of the pushback that you see? 
this is the place that we've got to dig in, like the nuances, because what's not helpful are these broad stroke judgments or stereotypes that we have that so-and-so of this party or that entire party, they don't care about poor people or hunger. I think it's ridiculous. It's not helpful. And it's actually not true. Hmm. Right. I mean, it's not just Christians, like people in general, like Americans, we're compassionate people. Yeah. We have a long history of that. And I think leaders of both parties demonstrate that they do have concern and care. The question is, we look at it differently or people look at it differently. My personal take is we actually need healthy Republicans and healthy Democrats and we need both of their voices and perspectives because it's a big, big, vast problem. But speaking more directly to like, what are some of the core issues? I think there might be some things about what's the role of government. Mm -hmm. So let me give a radically different example that should be a given. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. A lot of people said, you know what? It's a heart issue. It's a sin issue. Well, of course, we're going to agree with that. Racism is a sin issue and a heart issue. But to diminish that sinful people create broken systems or sinful systems is simply naive if we don't think that. Specifically, he was addressing something about lynching. Like lynching, just because it's legal by law, back then doesn't mean that we should simply acquiesce to the law. Christians should seek to engage government to say this is unjust, ungodly, foul, wrong, and we want to work with the government to change that, even if that means that there's going to be disruptive systems in our culture trying to adjust and change those things. We're currently seeing some of that in our world today. So, in my opinion, I think traditionally Christians believe that God created three institutions, church, family, government, church, home, government. And so I believe that God wants us to demonstrate compassion, character, justice in all of those areas. They clearly have nuances and differences. And I'm not suggesting that we should try to take over the government and make it a Christian nation, all of that kind of stuff. But it does have responsibility. And I believe scripture really does speak and attest to it. The danger, I think, is when we abdicate that responsibility of care for the poor or the hungry only to the government, because then it just relieves us of any responsibility as individuals and churches. And we need to be desperately reminded of our moral Christian obligation, because it's not just in order to change the world, like we need to be changed as the church. We as Christians need to be changed. A couple other myths, I would say, is that we just assume it's poor people's fault. It's They're lazy. They're not industrious. There's this kind of like, hey, if you just put your mind to it and your heart to it, then everything will be okay. And I think we're being somewhat, again, we're lacking empathy when we go about it in this way. I'm going to be very specific here, and then I'm just going to stop so that you can ask some questions and push back. I hear this all the time. You know, Poor people are lazy. Mm. They're taking advantage of the welfare system all the time. So here's what I would say. Are there people who take advantage of the system? Absolutely. Like, no one's going to deny that. But remember during our last financial economic crisis where the banking industry basically pillaged and milked lots of different things. We didn't walk away from that 
because of some bankers. Now, therefore, looking at all bankers and saying, all bankers are horrible, they're corrupt, they're bad. Every time I go to my local bank, I'm going to scream and shout at them and say so-and-so. So I don't quite understand how we take, yes, the reality that there are some, and it's, it's not a lot, there's just some who take advantage of the system and suddenly make this broad overstroke. And I just think that there's something within our human nature that we're just antagonistic towards those who have financial economic hardships. So I'll stop right there. It's so good. I just read a book called White Awake by Daniel Hill. I don't know if you've had a chance to read that. And he speaks about this a little bit in one of his latter chapters is about that, having that proximity to people who are living in poverty and how he would have said, I would have thought the same thing, like just work harder, get a job. It's like this, you know, this American dream, everybody can, you know, take care of it. It's the same. And I know that you care deeply about immigration in our country as well. And it's the same kind of thought of, oh, every person who comes into our country from Mexico, they're just taking all of our resources and they don't work hard. And I've never, ever seen anything less true if you ever actually meet someone who's an immigrant to our country. They Mm. are so hardworking and they are pouring back and giving to our country usually better than people who were born here. And so it's this kind of mind shift that we have to have as well. You know, it's funny that you, I don't think I, I don't want to make this up, but I feel like I heard you or saw you say something one time that you never imagined doing a life in politics. And here you mm-hmm. are, you know, working for a large organization, moving to DC, advocating on behalf of people in our country who are hungry towards government officials. And then you also released a book this year called Thou Shall Not Be a Jerk, A Christian's Guide to Engaging Politics. And so you, to me, are my, you're my guru. I'm coming to you and I I need you to tell me, how are we as Christians to engage in political things when my tendency would be, it's too much, I'm going to put my head in the sand. Mm-hmm. Other people's tendency would be like, I'm going to hold on so tightly to an ideology or a platform that I, I can't even see anything on the other side of it because I have such a grip on it. You know, I think that you said that, you know, politics matter because politics influence policies and policies influence people. So talk to me real quick. Well, it doesn't have to be real quick. I'm here all day for you, Eugene. Talk to me about how we as Christians engage. I mean, and we're recording this in July. It's coming out in August. We all know what's right around the corner is the election Mm. of 2020. And I feel as though no matter what happens on the other day of that election, it's just going to be crazy town in America. So you walk us through how we Christians can engage in this. You may have to rename your podcast Happy (laughs) Three Hours is what we should do. The Happy Three Hours. I would be willing to have that with you. So there you go. So, you know, It's true. I don't like politics. I wrote this book very reluctantly, very. I quit writing it four times (laughs) because I just envisioned all the criticism I was going to receive. And I've gotten all of those criticisms and so much more. But I also feel really burdened by the fact that I think as Christians, we're not necessarily navigating this conversation really well. So just the disclaimer, I don't like politics. I don't watch a lot of the cable news. You know, I follow it here and there. My only engagement with politics was that I ran for middle school president in seventh grade. I got crushed. I got 8% of the votes. (laughs) Hey, you ran. That's good. (laughs) (laughs) But somehow, you know, this is kind of God's orchestration. And so as you said, you know, I, I, I know that it matters. Politics is not the answer. It's not the ultimate answer. 
But I do believe that it is one way in which we as citizens, and we're talking about the church Christians, it's one way for us to exercise our calling to be good citizens here on this earth, acknowledging this is not our home. Mm -hmm. This is not our ultimate home, but we're so called to be light and salt. That's very clear in scripture. And one of the ways that we're called to be light and salt is to be a good neighbor, to love our neighbors. Now, politics is not the only way that we do that, but it is one way and a significant way that we do that. You kind of talked about it, but let me just talk about there's three camps of people that I think in the church we have to address in some way. There are those who, for whatever reason, including frustration, exhaustion, cynicism, all of the above, I'm raising my hand right now, who've chosen to abandon politics. It's just too much. I get it. All you got to do is just turn on the news. It is too much. So I think there are those who've chosen to altogether detach, abandon, but I'm actually concerned about those who've done that because of theological views, that it's not important. It's not our place. We should only focus on spiritual things, quiet time, church, evangelism. Now, I'm not knocking quiet time, church, evangelism. They're very, very important, but I think it is clearly wrong, in my opinion, to say that this is not part of our spiritual discipleship. That would be camp one. In camp two, there's a group that they may not want to admit this or acknowledge this, but it has grown to become idolatrous. Mm -hmm. We justify everything that we say and do because of this. And they'll never say this, but I'll just put it out there. I think it's possible that we've somehow pledged our allegiance to politics and political parties above the kingdom of God. Mm. So when people ask me the most dominant question that I'll get, they'll say, Eugene, stop skirting around the question. Are you a Republican or a Democrat? Are you progressive or, or conservative? And my honest answer, I'm not trying to be circuitous. My answer is on what topic, on what issue, what are we talking about? As if to suggest that one party is able to fully encapsulate Mm. the complexities and depth of the kingdom of God, I think it's blasphemous. I think it's ridiculous. It's the same reason why when I first became a Christian at the age of 18, I was told, if you're a Christian, you should vote Republican. No Mm. questions, no ifs, ands, and buts. Now, I live in Seattle right now, and I hear the opposite. Like, if you're a true, woke, justice-minded Christian, you must vote Democrat or you're gone. We're canceling you. You have no place. And I think both of these sentiments are actually pretty fundamentalistic and dangerous. It makes us lazy Mm -hmm. in our thinking, in our processing. And is it easy? It's not. I mean, it's really, really hard to navigate these things. And there's, I think, a third camp. And the third camp, again, are people that are just probably like you and I, we don't have all the answers. We're not super smart on all the details, all the nuances. I'm not a guru. I'm still trying to figure it out. And we're just trying to have integrity, be faithful, love God, love people. And we acknowledge this is a very imperfect system. And it reminds me of what this one theologian by the name of, I can't remember his name right now, but he says, the kingdom here and not yet. And it's just a reminder to us that we believe in the kingdom, but it's not fully actualized yet. And so we're in the midst of all of this tension right now. So if you're listening to this or watching this and you feel really tense about, am I doing this right? That's exactly how we should be feeling. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so that, th- those are kind of the three ways that we can navigate it. One last thing that I'll just say is my encouragement to people, let's make sure that our politics doesn't shape our theology and faith in God. Let's make sure that our theology, faith in Jesus, rooted in scripture, guided by the person and the Holy Spirit, that's what influences our politics and not the other way around. If you don't know it, guys, I'm a Texas girl through and through. I've lived here most of my life. I was born here and I love traveling. Here's why I love traveling throughout Texas, because it has a vast landscape of cultures, regions, destinations, and activities, which means there's an infinite number of different travel experiences. And no two travelers are exactly alike, and it means that no two trips should be either. If you're a beach person, well, you can have fun under the sun with Texas's 350 miles of coastline. If you're more of a rugged vacation type, there are campgrounds, hiking trails, and state parks galore. And foodies cannot get enough of Texas's world-famous barbecue and Tex-Mex. Enjoy live music, visit internationally recognized art museums, and check out thrilling cowboy experiences. And now, Travel Texas offers a -a one-of-a-kind online trip builder that allows users to generate a custom, visually-led trip matched to their unique interest. Guys, come visit my state. Visit TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn to get the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn. You guys, in January of 2024, I made a commitment to myself. I wanted to get stronger, which meant I needed to get in the gym, which means I needed to move my body in different ways. You guys know I love to walk. Well, it's spring, and spring is the best time for us to start a new workout routine. It's our yearly collective warm-up, and Peloton is here for everyone's yearly warm-up. This is the best time to get into a good rhythm, to tap into your power, and build towards your summer you. I love my Peloton. It accommodates to my schedule with a variety of class links to choose from. I can choose a 30-minute class. I can choose a 45-minute class. If you only have five minutes, there's literally a class to get you moving your body in five minutes. Peloton has a range of class types fit for every goal and every mood. There are classes if you want to hear country music, if you want to hear uh, rock, if you want to go back to the 80s. If you can't run, take a walking class. Need some grounding? Try yoga. If you want to level up, go for their Pilates or HIIT workouts. Here's what I love is that you can move at your own pace. And that is what I'm learning that my body needs right now. It needs to move at its own pace. Peloton makes the process easier with personalized recommendations and guided programs that take all the guesswork out of working out. You guys, we think about so many things during the day. Let's take the guesswork out. Let's jump right in and let's keep our fitness journey fresh every single day. Peloton has everything you need to get you where you're going. Whether you prefer to run outdoors, row or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. I personally love a good 45-minute hip-hop class. It gets me moving. It gets me excited. It's my favorite genre of music, just ask my kids. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. That's OnePeloton.com. You know, I see a lot of fear 
surrounding politics. And it's that fear of almost like what you were explaining of if I'm a good Christian, I vote Republican. And it's this fear of if I am too progressive, too liberal, then people are going to question my faith. They're going to question my devotion to the church. And and I would imagine this is way different here in the South, although I am in Austin, Texas. So I get a little bit of leeway here. But there's that idea that I have to stay so close to this. And so how do you recommend people? A, you have to acknowledge that that is probably happening in your world. And I think that is a hard thing to acknowledge because of the fear of if I let this go, then what? But what after someone acknowledge it, what is the step that you would say for someone to kind of unravel that thinking that if you've grown up in the church, you probably are having to deal with, I'm 42, having to think through those something through those things of, I love what you said of, okay, on what issue? Like, if you're asking mm. me where am I, you know, conservative or liberal, on what? I'm going to say mm. that from now on, Eugene. You have just mm. scored me the next line. Mm. But it's true. But what is your next step for someone who acknowledges, okay, I want to unravel this thinking, and then what? You just brought up the reality that there are listeners right now that think this way. So the first thing that they should know is you're not alone. Right. You're not alone. Like, all of us, you, me, like, I struggle with this every single day. All of us wrestle with this on some level or another. So I think it's okay to breathe a little bit, give ourselves and others some space and grace Mm -hmm. to kind of wrestle with all of these issues, acknowledging that there's complexities. I actually think that if we end up navigating this, not perfectly, but with integrity, what end up happening is to some, you're just too conservative. Mm -hmm. To others, you're too progressive. What I'm suggesting is to be a Christ follower is to be faithful amid tension, to stay engaged, remain hopeful, love anyways, walk with integrity, bear witness to the love, mercy, and grace of Christ. So when people ask me, what's your politics? That's what I say. Mm -hmm. That's it. And so if you're not a fan of tension, then what I would reluctantly say is pick one side and go hard and deep. If you're not a fan of tension. That way you'll know exactly where you stand and how, who others will disagree with you on. But I truly believe that because politics is not the ultimate answer and our allegiance is to the kingdom of God, we're going to be in this tension where our ultimate home is in the way, the character, and the kingdom of God. A couple more things that I'll say on a practical level is that if we care about things, and I'm not trying to vilify all media But I think we have to acknowledge that right now in our society, culture, which includes media, sometimes includes religious leaders, like it operates on the currency of fear. Mm -hmm. So earlier you just said we're all afraid. And yet that's the currency that keeps being added into the fray and frenzy. So imagine all of the anxiety that we feel. So for us and for me, I truly believe let's try to lean more into faith, hope and love as opposed to the currency of fear. That means sometimes it is not a bad thing. It's wise and smart and self-care to turn off the media, to turn off your favorite political pundits and breathe and rest and Sabbath. But in addition to those things, if we care about certain things, we can't just lean purely on uh, headlines, on one tweet, on some anonymous, crazy Facebook story that's been like passed on to you by a uncle or aunt that I will not name publicly. (laughs) Right. But we all have that uncle or aunt. 100%. 
So I think we owe it to ourselves and that particular issue to dig in, to understand the complexities and nuances, and to actually understand why others might think differently on those matters. I don't know about you, but I think the temptation in our culture is we're creating echo chambers, our own little enclaves, our own little thought posses or fraternities and sororities. And so we understand what others like me think on these things, but we don't quite understand how others are navigating this conversation. Last thing that I'll just say is that we cannot reduce civic engagement to one vote every four years. If that's our posture, we're actually part of the problem. Hmm. Discipleship is an everyday thing. And so voting is one part of that discipleship. It's kind of like, um, I want to be very wise in how I navigate this. I'm a big believer in missions. I believe in missions, believe in missionaries, believe in international missions. But sometimes I think in the church, we can be so enamored about going or sending people across the world. And yet we're so reluctant or unwilling to cross literally our neighborhood street. Mm. So I sometimes use that as an analogy. Like we're so invested in that one vote every four years. And then in between, there's just nothing. And so I would encourage people, uh, get involved in your schools, in your neighborhoods. Is it messy? It is. But I don't think Jesus ever said that following Christ, living as a credible witness to him would be easy and light. Yeah. And so that's what I would say. You know, you mentioned the tension. And I think that when we look back at scriptures and we look at the life of Christ, like he did that so well. He lived and sat and walked and befriended and got into the tension. And mm. so when I yep. look at his life and I want to, you know, him to be my example, then it gives me a little bit more confidence that the tension A is not going to kill me. I mean, you know, mm. like you can do it. Like we can do the tension. But also, I mean, I'll admit, I'm also super challenged and encouraged by what you're saying of not being so quick to think that like, well, this is what I think. And so I'm not even going to care about what you think. And again, I'm not engaging in politics. I don't do Twitter. I think about Twitter, Eugene, and my armpits start sweating. Like I can't handle it because of the tension that's there probably. But it's a reminder to me, and I know you talk about that in your book a lot as well as how we engage the other side. I want to read, it says the 10 commandments of engaging in politics for me, okay? So this is what we can all learn here. Number one, thou shalt not go to bed with political parties. Number two, thou shalt not be a jerk. Number three, thou shalt listen and build bridges. Number four, thou shalt be about the kingdom of God. Number five, thou shalt live out your convictions. Number six, thou shalt have perspective and depth. Number seven, thou shalt not lie, get played, or manipulated. Number eight, thou shalt pray, vote, and raise your voice. Number nine, thou shalt love God and love people. And number 10, this is so good, thou shalt believe that Jesus remains king. And I'll add my own words, no matter who's in office. And it's so good to remember. I want to switch gears just a little bit with you. By no means do we need to talk about what you've been dealing with in the past week, for say. We're recording mm. this at the end of July. But I know that as your, you know, your new role, you've had to take, you've had some hard conversations. Just to summarize, one of your board members, a representative, stepped down. But that's not, I don't want to talk about that. But what I want to talk about is something that you wrote on Instagram in response mm. to that, okay? So Ted Yoho stepped down from the board of directors from your organization. If anyone does not sure what happened, we can put a link up in the show notes about what went down, but that's not the point of this. This is what you wrote. You said, in today's culture, expectations for responses speed up to an unfathomable pace. 
Hours are perceived into days and days into weeks. Once we become aware of the incident, we try to be thoughtful, prayerful, and decisive. Here's what I want to stick on right here. You said the best decisions I made this week was to breathe, pray, walk, seek counsel, wait to have an actual conversation and still stay true to our convictions. You know, this goes along with politics. Everything feels so fast and everyone needs to make a statement and make a stance. And no doubt you guys have had to make some hard choices in your organization. But talk to me about what it felt like for you to realize I'm going to do what I need to do to make the best decision and I'm not going to rush it because I think Mm -hmm. there's this tendency of like, I got to say something, I got to do something, whatever it might look like. How did you walk through those decisions in that type of way at your own pace? Well, it was hard and it remains hard. And I think for all the reasons that you mentioned, I think there's a reason why anxiety has been documented to be clearly on the rise among our culture today and our generations. And it's because there's a certain pace right now that is not sustainable for our Mm. human souls. And as a result, sometimes you then have to be countercultural. So I would say we just have to name it first, like name what's challenging. What are the barriers to our flourishing? What are the barriers that sometimes impede me to make thoughtful, prayerful decisions. And it doesn't mean that we can't make decisive decisions, but I want to make sure that we make decisions that still reflect our character and our integrity. So, you know, going back to maybe a prior conversation, you know, it's not just the what we decide to do. I think the how also really matters because the how is formational. The what is more about what others perceive of us, but the how we do things speak to the formation of our souls. And so I think our culture is, if I can just be somewhat general here, like we're not healthy. Uh, We're sick because we're basically succumbing to all of this pressure. And I'm speaking to myself right now. There has been moments in my leadership years in the past where I've struggled with anxiety, with fear. I had a moment of some physical bouts with ulcers. And I can tell you, maybe not specifically what it was, but it was the how. It was just swimming constantly in these waters of anxiety. So I think it's important for us to name these things. And then again, try to be thoughtful to who you are, who you worship, and what you're about. It doesn't mean that I don't care about what people are saying. It doesn't mean that I'm not swayed by donors and board of directors. I'd be lying if I said that Mm -hmm. those things don't matter. But when it's all said and done, when I walk, when I breathe, when I pray, when I seek counsel, when I read scripture, it reminds me about three things, who I am, who I worship, and what I'm about. Mm. And I need to constantly remind myself of those things. Mm. It's so good. And I think that while most of us who are listening to this are not going to have to make the decision that you've had to make in this week that we're listening to it on the level that you had to do and walk through with your organization, it's still such a good reminder of the things you talked about of how to know those three things at the end of the day. And that's what it is. Thanks for sharing that with me because I read that and I just thought, man, that I want to see that from leaders. I want to hear leaders say that this is how we're doing things with intention, staying true to our convictions, listening, praying, being silent. And so I just wanted to publicly just bring that up and say, thank you for doing that. Thank you. Appreciate that. Good. Okay. I want to ask you this, and you're the first person I've talked about this with. And so here we go. We're in the middle of COVID. No surprise. We're still here. It's still here. 
It's been quarantine. I know you said you've enjoyed having your two older kids home, which I hear so many friends of mine that have kids in college. With an asterisk. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Aaron has said, I've said this so many times, he's always said the best thing about quarantine has been family time and the worst thing has been family time. <laughs> okay, right. But I have heard so many of my friends who their college kids have been home just saying, oh, we got this extra gift. Like, you know, this extra time with them that we wouldn't have had. And so quarantine has been difficult to say the least in our world. I know that you have probably seen a lot of difficulty just in the organization that you run. We talked about that earlier in the conversation, but I want to talk to you about this. I heard um, several of my friends who are Asian American mention this early in quarantine, early, Mm -hmm. early March about the racism towards Asian Americans when COVID first entered our world. Can we talk about what you saw with that? Did you experience it personally? Can you tell me some about that? Yeah, this is an important conversation and I'm really grateful that you asked it. And I'm especially grateful that you're asking it now because people were asking it in the first month and then it just kind of fizzled out. And then in response to all that's been going on in our country, it really has dissipated. It's gone. Yeah. Because, and, and the reason I said, I have not heard about this since March. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So obviously it's still ongoing, but just to give people a little bit of perspective of what's going on here. You know, I think anytime, obviously, COVID is this horrible, dramatic issue and disease and virus that has impacted the entire world. And I think when people are angry, upset, fearful, anxious, we need someone to blame. Mm. And so the tendency then is to blame, quote unquote, the other. Mm. And the other in this case, because it originated from Wuhan, China, it's easy to blame. Chinese people. And if I can just be blunt here and candid, it frustrates me not that I want my Chinese sisters and brothers to go through this sort of abuse, but for many people in the world, they can't distinguish Chinese. Chinese equates to Asians. So whether it happens to Chinese women or men, young or old, to Japanese, Indonesian, Indian, Korean, it's just wrong. It's not right. And I think it's even more disturbing when there's silence and this sort of discrimination. And I'm not talking about just verbal abuse, which I've experienced during the last few months, but we're talking about thousands of documented physical assault and abuse that has taken place in our country and around the world. And part of the reason why this is painful for me is that it's not just coming from one particular ethnic race. Like we're experiencing this from all folks. Mm. So it hurts. It hurts tremendously. And as an American citizen, I think it's just another reminder to me that no matter what happens, no matter if I flaunt my Instagram pictures with an American flag, which I recently did, I'm a proud American citizen of an imperfect country. I'm a president of an organization. I have my degrees. That for some, no matter what happens, I'll still be the other, not fully accepted. And that also is a little painful as well. Mm-hmm. At the age of 49, 50 to be, to hear people say, go back home. Mm-hmm. It, I know it's not the most poetic thing. It sucks. It really does. And to hear your kids hear those same things, to hear one of my daughters be verbally assaulted as she walked across the street a couple months ago. 
to hear stories and to see stories of old grandmothers, Asian grandmothers getting mocked, some getting beat up as a result of this. And, you know, I don't know if you're aware of this, but I got into a little bit of an unintended situation with uh, President Trump. He doesn't on know Twitter? Who, that's right. See, I don't I, go over there. I don't play. Yeah. That. Tell me what um, happened. I think he's on Twitter. That's, that's the rumor. <laughs> the yeah. Rumor. Now, I do know that. Yes. Yeah. No. So, you know, he referred to the virus that's been now universally for months been called COVID-19 or the coronavirus, calling it the Chinese virus. And I politely but firmly replied back. Again, not sure if he read it or not, but I did reply back saying that does not help the current issues that Asian Americans are facing as a result of it, that we have to be careful with our language. And it just kind of went a little viral and the Washington Post wrote an article about it. And so it does matter. I'm going to add one more thing here, because if there's one thing about Asian American history that I would love, uh, like your listeners to, to know, I would say is to Google Vincent Chin. Okay, so Vincent Chin is very, very significant in modern Asian American history because this young man, while attending uh, basically a groom's party before a wedding, was beaten up and eventually assaulted and killed. And this happened right during a tremendous economic downturn in the country and specifically in the auto industry. So this happened in Detroit. And so he was confronted by a couple, if I may just be blunt, couple white Caucasian men who were upset and angry about what? Jobs, unemployment, and then threatened this person, followed and pursued him at the parking lot afterwards and eventually beat him to death and they were acquitted. Mm. So why am I concerned? Obviously, verbal assaults, they're horrible and we should just name it. But I'm also really concerned because there are going to be, as it has already been, physical assault. And I just do not want to see another story or stories of Vincent Chin coming up in the same way that we should all speak against abuse of power, whether it's the George Floyd, whether it's citizens taking it upon themselves to pursue an Ahmad Arbery. Those things are wrong. And so I'm just grateful that you brought that up because it still should be part of the conversations and the vigilance that we should be having. Well, I'm thankful for you talking with me about it. I alluded to the book I read because I just finished it this weekend. That's why I keep bringing up Wide Awake. But he talks about how, you know, being this white supremacy, this idea that white is the, it's what everything is then under. That idea is what is spurring this on. That idea is what is we're seeing come out in power. That idea is what we're seeing two citizens chase Ahmaud Arbery or Vincent that happening. That supremacy and that has got to die and it's got to be put to death and it's got to be talked about by the church. And frankly, especially by white people, we have got to be willing to face that head on and say that this idea of white supremacy, it is thriving in our churches and it has got to go. I put up something the other day on, see, Instagram's where I hang out, Eugene. So that's where, I, that's where you'll find me. I put up something the other day and I cannot remember what it was, but a friend of mine responded back and said that she thought her husband was going to lose his job because of his one sermon that he did on mm. white supremacy in his church. Mm. And 
I thought this is just, it's so problematic for me to see mm. this idea. And I, I don't want to equate white supremacy with politics, although I'm sure we could finagle our way there a little bit. But it's what you talked about earlier with this idea of I'm going to give my allegiance to something besides Jesus. Mm. And I think that when we're giving our allegiance to anything besides Jesus, whether it be a political party, an ethnic group, a race, is where we're going to see this fear and hatred and ultimately what we've seen videotaped because we know it's mm. been happening for hundreds of years, what mm. we've seen videotaped and come up through the media. Amen. Amen, sister. I think you could just do an altar call right there and <laughs> we can end it. But let, let me just add this to it. And I think as you address that particular issue, you know, I think this is a word for all of us, no matter what our backgrounds, our ethnicity, our gender, for all of us. When we read the scriptures and we're not convicted and challenged and disrupted by Jesus, mm. Because the gospel does two things. It both comforts us and also disrupts us. The danger, I think, of Western Christianity or even modern Christianity is that we're enamored by a gospel that only comforts us. Now, I like that part about the gospel because I need comforting. Mm -hmm. But if we reduce the gospel only to a comfortable gospel, not only is it dangerous, I actually think it's a false, blasphemous mm -hmm. gospel. Yeah. So no matter who we are, if we read the scriptures and we're never challenged and disrupted by Jesus, what we've ended up doing is somehow, somewhere, in some fashion, we have molded Jesus into my, our image. Mm. And that's for all of us. And so I genuinely pray that we would be captivated by both this gospel that comforts, but also challenges, disrupts us as well. And that is going to be my prayer is right there. Jesus disrupt me. Um, Eugene, I don't want to say this because I don't want to make anyone else mad, but you've been one of my favorite interviews in a long time. So this I'm is coming back joy. next Friday. This is <laughs> You and I are co-hosting the happy three hours with Jamie and I, Eugene. I would co-host a podcast with you any day. Tell me what's happening in your world that you're loving and reading. You know, I'm just going to be very honest and say it has been a rough month. I think transitioning to lots of different things, as sappy as it sounds, it really is being home with our children. And the reason why it's especially emotional for my wife and I is that we are set to move to D.C. in July. And so we've been grieving the reality that we're going to leave our kids behind Mm. And the fact that they're home, even though there are, quote unquote, those asterisk moments <laughs> yeah. where we need some time away and vice versa, mm -hmm. it's been really, really good. It's been medicine to us. I'm a huge outdoors person as well. And so what's been giving me some life and breath and flourishing during this time is to get away into the woods, to go hiking. And I'm a huge fisherman. I love fishing want to get into hunting as well. I'm trying to get connected to, I think your pastor at Austin Stone, who occasionally shares his fishing pictures as well. We've exchanged a couple of photos. So one of these days, I've got to go fishing with him. But in terms of what I'm reading, you know, right now, I regularly read this book called The Anthology of Martin Luther King's Sermons. Mm. And I just need regular words of exhortation and challenge and encouragement, not just because of the current, I guess, unrest and I think an extension of the civil rights movement that's going on right now. But I think as a reminder that I want to be careful 
um, not to pledge allegiance to either party. I mean, a lot of folks don't realize that he was criticized so severely by people on both sides, too conservative, too progressive, too moderate, too so-and-so. But again, just trying to have boldness and courage and faithfulness all in the middle. Mm, So good. I also, did I hear that you're a huge NBA fan? If there's a GM right now listening to this show, I am still a free agent. I will go to the Orlando bubble. You want to go and be in the bubble? Mm-hmm. Yes, I want to be in the bubble. Yes, I am a big NBA fan. Right now when we're recording this, are they able to have their families in this bubble with them? Families only, supposedly. Families only. Okay. I am not a big NBA fan. Like, I will watch the finals. Like, you know, like, whatever. I'm a big college football. Okay. That's probably my favorite sport to watch. Okay, I got to ask, who's your team? I'm assuming it's one of the Texas teams. Yes, the University of Texas is who I will root for. Okay. And then I like college basketball when it gets to, you know, March Madness. Sure. So the other day, I mean, I watched, you know, sports, we just got them back. So here, you know, I just turned on the channel the other day and I watched a whole baseball game and I love baseball, but I really only love World Series baseball. But I watched the whole game. I didn't even know who I was watching, but I was just like, I'm so happy to be watching sports right now. Well, I've been watching reruns of sporting events. <laughs> That's how desperate I've been on. So just for what it's worth. Early on in quarantine, I watched a rerun of when the University of Texas was in the Rose Bowl and we won with Vince Young. And yeah. listen, I'm oh, watching I remember it that. and I was anxious and I was nervous. And my kids kept looking at me going, mom, you know, we win the game. Like, you know, the ending. I'm like, I know, but I'm still so nervous about what's going to happen. Oh, and geez. I knew the ending. There's so many sermon illustrations in there, but yes, I'm so happy to have sports back. So that's good. Well, awesome. Eugene, thank you. Thank you for your wisdom, the way that you speak about topics that can be so dividing and divisive and difficult. You bring such grace and humility to the table um, that you can't help but saying, yes, I'm reminded too that there is nothing more than I want to be. I want to have my allegiance to Jesus and Jesus alone. And it it doesn't make that we can't be involved in politics at all. Mm. It just means that we know that our hope is not found there. So thank you. I really appreciate that. I'm going to take the liberty right now to do my personal sign-off. Friends, thanks for joining us at the Happy Three Hours with Jamie and Eugene. I love it. I love it. We'll be here every Friday for your pleasure. Um, Seriously, thank you. Thank you so much. God bless. You guys, I told you, I know you love this conversation so much that you're wishing you had a notepad and a pen, or maybe you're going to go back and listen to it again. Here's what I'd love for you to do. I'd love for you to share it with a friend if you loved it. That is the number one way that people find out about our podcast. I hope that you are feeling encouraged as you listen to the show today. I hope that you are feeling like you might want to get involved with politics this year to be a voice. To learn more from Eugene, check out his book, Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk, A Christian's Guide to Engaging Politics. If you missed anything from the show, we write everything in our show notes for you. So be sure and check that out at jamieivy.com slash 313. Guys, don't forget to find out more information about my newest book, UBU, which launches on October 1st. Text the words UBU, no spaces, to 33777. We're going to text you back and you're going to get all the things that you need to know about the book. Today's show was edited and mixed by the team at Podshaper and the music was developed for the show by Matt Graham. Show notes are written by our newest team member. Everybody welcome Abigail Castell to the Ivy Media team. The whole thing is organized by Lindsay Sweeney. 
Guys, enjoy your week. Share the show with a friend. Have a virtual happy hour with a friend. And I'll see you back here next week with my new friend, Rachel Gilson. <laughs>